I hope your brains are really switched on this morning. We're going to go on a bit of a roller coaster ride, okay? There's going to be a lot of Bible verses, quite a lot of information, so you need to be really on the edge of your seat and switched on, okay? Question to begin with. This is not a rhetorical question, so you are able to give me some answers. Could I have the first slide, Gail? Question. What does a successful New Testament church look like? Who called out over here? Kathleen, did you say something? Oasis. Good answer. <laughs> That's funny. I didn't have that on my list. Anybody else would like to share? What does a successful New Testament church look like? A bride. Very good. Keep them coming. Sharing the word of God. Oh, sharing with everyone as they have need. Very good. Yes. Thank you, Ruth. Maddie. Say that again, Gail. The community. Did anyone hear that? Very good. Very good. Anyone else? Heaven. Very good. <laughs> On earth, as it is in heaven. Very good. Okay, that's very good answers. Could I have the next slide? These are some ones that I came up with. It's got to be biblical, isn't it? It's got to look like Jesus. I think we need to be filled with the Holy Spirit. Agreed. Gifted sons and daughters. Prophets included. <laughs> Everyone is savvy. Savvy stands for significant, accepted, valued, and included. It grows internally and externally. And I think there should be signs and wonders to demonstrate God's kingdom. That is a successful New Testament church, at least, and includes all those things that you said. The Apostle Paul has a, a great prophetic revelation of God's intention for the church. Could I have the next slide? Go on. If you've got a Bible and you want to turn to it rather than read on there, it's Ephesians chapter 3. Ephesians chapter 3, and I'm going to start at verse 8. This is the Apostle Paul writing. Although I am less than the least of all God's people, this grace was given me to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to make plain to everyone the administration of this mystery, which for ages past was kept hidden in God, who created all things. Here's the key verse. His intent was that now, through the church, that's us, the manifold wisdom of God should be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms according to his eternal purpose, which he accomplished in Christ Jesus, our Lord. That is a pretty good one-verse summary of the church's purpose. What does the New Testament church look like? Well, it looks like demonstrating the manifold wisdom of God to rulers, authorities in heavenly realms. So it's now, isn't it? Verses. 
It's us, and it's about God's manifold wisdom, his multifaceted, multidimensional, technicolor splendor, and his brilliance. The manifold wisdom of God is his unique character and nature, his mind, his will, his thoughts, his very essence. It includes his plan and purposes for our salvation, redemption, justification, sanctification, and eternal security. That is all the manifold wisdom of God. If I could sum up in one word what the manifold wisdom of God looks like, and if I could sum up one word for church, it would be this. Jesus. Jesus. <laughs> the worship this morning was great. Thank you, Chris and Paul and Neil. The worship was all focused wasn't it, on Jesus. Lavished on Jesus. It's all about Jesus. Good to have the next slide. Colossians 2. This comes from Colossians chapter 2, verse 2. Paul says, My goal is that they, that's the church, may be encouraged in heart and united in love so that they may have the full riches of complete understanding in order that they may know the mystery of God. What's the mystery of God? Namely, Christ. In whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. The manifold wisdom of God is in Christ. Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of knowledge and wisdom. Guess where we're seated? In Christ. (laughs) It's cool, isn't it? So let's be clear. Manifold wisdom of God is many things. It's the entirety of God. But it's Jesus. If we read Jesus, look at Jesus, watch what Jesus does, that's the manifold wisdom of God. That is the intent of the church, the bride. Okay, so if it's all about Jesus, which it is, we're his body, let's take a look at what Jesus' mission was. Could I have the next slide? This is taken from Luke chapter 4. This is a great, great passage. A few years ago, a guy called Stephen Covey wrote a, book, wrote a book called Seven Habits of Highly Effective People. And in that, he said, all good, effective people should have a personal mission statement. Do you remember that? Who's going to own up to having a personal mission statement? Come on. No? Don't tell me I'm the only one. You're lying. Come on. I know you never you did. If Jesus had read Steve Covey's book... <laughs> He would have come to this. Okay, this is what happened to Jesus. Jesus went to Nazareth, where he had been brought up. And on the Sabbath day, he went into the synagogue, as was his custom. He stood up to read, and the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him. Unrolling it, he found a place where it's written, The Spirit of the Lord is on me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favour. This is, okay, a deliberate prophetic statement that Jesus is speaking of, okay? It's not like Jesus has gone like this. Dude, here's Isaiah, and he's gone... 
Oh, yeah. Uh, what does it say? Oh, the spirit of the sovereign Lord is on me. Okay. He's, not, he's not kind of guessed at it. He's not kind of gone, mm, what do I fancy reading? Ooh. Oh, I know, yeah. Ooh, it's fallen out at Isaiah 61. He's not. He couldn't have been more intentional. It was kind of like an ambush. It was a setup, wasn't it? That he should be handed the scroll of Isaiah. Ooh. I know where I'm going to go with this. And he goes to chapter 61. Then he ends in verse 21. It's not on the screen, but it says, Today, today, this day, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. Today, says Jesus back then, this prophecy is coming true. Watch me. Look at me. (laughs) That's what he says, isn't he? I'm going to fulfill it. It's today. It's now. So how do we apply this to ourselves? If we're the body of Christ, if we're Jesus' representative, representing Jesus, we probably ought to get with his agenda, should we not? I think it's very wise to be on a mission that Jesus was on, to display and demonstrate the manifold wisdom of God with all its resources, with all of heaven, with everything that we've already mentioned. So, let's have a look at the whole of that Isaiah 61 passage. I think that is on a slide, is it? Yes, it is. Okay, so this is what, where Jesus spoke from. It's interesting, actually. I don't know if you've um, ever recognised this, but in, there's one verse that actually Jesus didn't talk about, and it's the... Um, he says, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favour, and then he stops. And it's interesting, I think, that he says, he doesn't say, and the day of vengeance of our God, which is going to be in this passage. Anyway, that's another preach. <laughs> I'll let you think through. Oh, why is that then? Anyway... Isaiah 61, verse 1. So, the spirit of the sovereign Lord is on me, because the Lord has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim freedom for the captives, and release from darkness for the prisoners, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favour and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn, provide for those who grieve in Zion, to bestow on them a crown of beauty instead of ashes, the oil of gladness instead of mourning, and a garment of praise instead of a spirit of despair. They, the aforementioned, will be called oaks of righteousness, <laughs> a planting of the Lord for the display of his splendor. They, the prisoners, the captives, the despairing, they will rebuild the ancient ruins, restore the places long devastated. They will renew the ruined cities that have been devastated for generations. Wow, that sounds a lot like the kingdom to me. Does it not you? That God could take those kinds of people, prisoners, captives, brokenhearted, those in poverty, to what? Rebuild ancient ruins, restore places long devastated, renew ruined cities. Because we live in an age where qualification is so exalted, this smacks, doesn't it, of going, what? How can these people do that? How on earth are they qualified? <laughs> Thank you, Holy Spirit. 
I just want to focus a little bit and the main bulk of what I want to say this morning on who are the poor, the brokenhearted, the captives, the prisoners. Who are they who mourn and grieve? What do their faces look like for us? Now, I know that you could pick up any newspaper, tune into any day of the, any day of the week on the news, and you can read passages like this, you're all quite well informed, and you go, yes, I, I know what sorts of people these are. Yeah, I've seen them on TV. It's HIV epidemic in Africa. We've got lawlessness in Brazil. We've got child prostitution in Asia. And you could go on and on and on and on. Hunger, famine, the whole nine yards. But let's look a little bit closer to home, shall we? Could I have the next slide, Gail? Take the issue of poverty. The children's charity Bernardo's reckon there are currently three and a half million children, okay, not adults, just children, three and a half million living in poverty. That's almost a third, a third of all children. in our country, not Africa, in the UK. 1.6 million are deemed to live in extreme poverty. It's a thought that a family with two adults, okay, and two children under 13 need to have at least £317 a week. I don't know who do these stats. That's just over £45 a day. After, pay, after paying for housing to be above the poverty line. You are classed in, as being in severe poverty when you have £12 a day to live on. £12 a day. There are people who live in Great Britain on £12 a day. Slavery. I don't know what William Wilberforce would have to say about this, but I read in the Daily Mail recently, Labour MP Frank Field, he's produced a report into slavery for the Home Office estimating there are at least 10,000 victims of slavery. Where? In this country, in this nation. The Home Secretary Theresa May says this, I'm calling for a blitz on the scarcely believable modern slave trade, saying slavery is all around us, hidden yet in plain sight. Shocking, isn't it? Don't worry, good news is going to come, but not yet. (laughs) Homelessness. Homelessness is a big issue. Very big issue. So 6,437 people slept rough in London just last year. That's an increase of 75% over three years. That's just in our capital. Last year, 113,260 people in England approached their councils and saying they're homeless. Let me take it. 113,260 people in England approached their council 
as homeless. What about those who live right on our doorstep? Down your street, in our communities, in my road. The victim of domestic abuse. Frightened, violated, squashed. I'm going to come back to that in a minute. The individual who cannot secure employment, no matter how hard they try. The person who's suffering some form of mental illness. The socially isolated, excluded. The single parent who's lonely, scared, overwhelmed. These are the faces of Isaiah 61 for us today. That's what they look like. That's what prisoners look like. That's what captives look like. The children from fatherless homes, orphans, deserted, desolate. What about the elderly? I think it is a real scandal. They get so overlooked. The amount of pensioners in poverty, <laughs> that's a whole other stat. Undercared for, and if I'm honest, underappreciated. Refugees, asylum seekers. Did you know in Essex, Essex has the largest population of Polish people anywhere in the UK? Particularly in Braintree District, but there are some in Chelmsford. These are the people of our community who Isaiah is describing. You could probably describe a whole bunch of other people. There's loads more on the list. Okay? But these are the people they're speaking to. These are the people who are going to restore, renew this city. (laughs) Isaiah 61 was prophesied over me many years ago now by, and I know I've mentioned this in another preach, by... Um, Ian and Marjorie's son, Phil Warnock. And uh, I hadn't been at Oasis Church very long. So it must have been about 1998, I guess. And I was in the home group, uh, Chris and Rachel Vincent's home group, and didn't really know any experience of prophetic people doing this stuff. And, you know, my background's very Baptist. straight. And, um, yeah, Phil Warnock just basically says, you know, he says, I don't really know your name because you're new. Uh, and you know how you feel like when you're exposed in a whole new group, like, oh man, all I want to do is come and just make friends. Um, he says, literally, he says, I can see written, written on you. This is in his mind, this was not literally. <laughs> he said, but I can see you from top to toe. He says, I can see Isaiah 61 written all down you. He said, are you familiar with that passage? And I thought, mm, yeah, probably. He said, well, I'll read it to you anyway. And he wrote it. And I was absolutely one of those times. Where, you know when you get absolutely wrecked? But you also, you have very, very, very sharp clarity. It's like you've just, you've, you've, you've just spoken my personal mission statement. <laughs> what I want to give my life to, what I would do anything for, is exactly what you've just said. How incredible. I became a Christian when I was 18. And literally, that verse, it articulated everything that I was passionate about. I remember when I first became a Christian, I, got, I went down to a Christian bookshop, got a whole lot of stuff. But one of them was that um, Francis of Assisi prayer, Lord, make me an instrument of your peace. Where there is hatred, let me bring your love. Let me. And I was going, oh, I don't know who Francis of Assisi is, but I like that. That really resonates with me. I want it. So I got it. Then I was at an event and tear fund, the, the uh, Christian charity were doing some stuff. 
do you want to sponsor a child? I was like, yes, I do. <laughs> and I signed up. Then I moved to Compassion and, and so on and so forth. So it's always, always, always been significant. But God has taken me on a, on a flight like you wouldn't believe. Because it's one thing, isn't it, to be, <laughs> can I use that phrase, turned on by something. Like you see a need and you go, oh yeah. And you're passionate about it and you're going, I really want to do it. I want to get involved with these people. This domestic abuse is an outrage. This, this poverty is a scandal. How can people not have fresh, clean drinking water? And all these horrors that you read about. But when you actually come face to face with it in reality, rather than on television, a magazine, DVD, as, as good as they are, when you're actually in it, <laughs> you think, man, this is really, really something. And God's taken me on that journey. And I just want to share a few things. It has been a privilege for the last 13 years to work with families who are going through really, really difficult and challenging circumstances. It's immensely privileged, but it is incredibly, incredibly challenging as well. More challenging than I ever thought. So I've been children's centre manager for four children's centres in Brentwood. I've worked with schools. And I currently manage a project called Brentwood Connect. And for me, whenever I see these families, whenever I'm interacting in my day job... In the back of my mind, I'm going, you're the people that Isaiah spoke about. Excuse me. You are the brokenhearted. You are mourning, aren't you? <laughs> I can see it. You can feel it. They can even just verbalize and communicate it. So it's been an awesome privilege. Two prolific issues, okay, we will be confronted with as a church. If we take this passage seriously if we go Isaiah 61 it's integrated into our very DNA if people have a flavor of us it's going to reflect Isaiah 61 as has been prophesied and I won't go into the history I've not got time this is what we're going to encounter okay this is reality in 2014 the first biggie the first mountain that I come across far 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 too often is this domestic abuse? Go, can I have the next slide? I'll let you read that definition, but it is a very sad reflection on our society, I think, that we even need to have refuges, safe places for women and, I hasten to say, men. Did you know that a men's Refuge has opened in London quite recently, but it's predominantly women. 838,000 reported cases of domestic abuse. That's a verbal or physical attack every 37 seconds. Every 37 seconds, someone, somewhere, is being abused. In Essex, I think this is actually 2012, maybe, 26,917 reported cases. Really scary thing? This is just the tip of the iceberg. 
honestly. More go unreported than reported. Fear, consequences. So the numbers are staggering. It's believed one in three women at some point in their lives will be abused. It's truly shocking. But it happens in our community. It happens down your street. I remember my very first visit to Basel and Women's Aid. Being a man, they obviously had to plan it earlier in advance so that every occupant of the refuge knew that I was coming. A man will be coming at half ten for a meeting with us. He's fine. He's good. Nothing's going to happen. You're not going to come to harm. But I needed that warning that I was coming. Number plate given, car, all the rest of it. So anyway, I go in, instantly impacted by the atmosphere. (laughs) And it was not good. I don't really know how to describe this experience particularly being a man. But I was shown around this women's refuge. I was shown the, uh, the accommodation that these women go into. I was shown the communal lounge. And to be honest with you, <laughs> I, didn't, I, I was absolutely lost for words. All I wanted to do was just go, I'm so sorry. I'm just so sorry. It's not your fault. I'm really sorry. That's what I fancy doing. Even more horrific, the youngest person there when I went was 17. The oldest, 71. 71 years old. This lady had endured 50 years of being battered. 50 years. <laughs> what can you say? But it's the reality. They never, they never have a vacant room at Basel and Women's Aid. They have other sites. (laughs) More housing. More outreach. It's just soaring. Shocking as it may be, because time's getting by. Think of this. Given these numbers, how do we feel about the perpetrators? How much compassion have we got for those? How would you handle it? How would we handle it? Are they not part of the Isaiah 61 call? Two main reasons. Two main reasons men or women perpetrate this kind of abuse. Number one, mental health. Number two, alcohol. That's what they reckon. Now, I know there's... 
a heap of other factors. But when it's come down to it, whether it's through mind-altering alcohol, mind-altering drugs, mind-altering depression, uh, etc., they reckon it's mental illness. And most acts come right through alcohol because they're out of control. Angry people. Mental health is another thing that is just almost epidemic levels in our country. There's lots of stats. You've probably heard enough. <laughs> but again, Maddie and I, Maddie Davies here, she works um, with, works with me. Um, I think almost, almost every single case, every single family that we visit and see has mental health issues, isn't it? Going back to children's centre, same. Extended schools, same. And it's just, again, soaring. Do we have anything to say about it? The other week I had to do a presentation to all the staff with a new organisation we work for. So Brentwood Connects, a project that sits underneath an umbrella organisation called Inspiration Youth Call. And uh, the CEO was getting together all the staff and obviously I had to give a little bit of an update and report on um, how things were going with Brentwood Connect. And I thought, other than data and statistics and other bits and bobs, I thought, you know what, there's one thing I want to communicate, it's this. In the 13 years that I've been working with vulnerable families and children, and I tried to think to myself, is, is there a silver thread? Is there something common that is, is true for all of these people? And my memory's not brilliant, I, I, I grant you that. But this is the one thing, the one thing that I do think runs through every scenario. I hear it spoken, I can feel it, I can sense it. It's described in many words, but it's this. It is hopelessness. It's hopelessness. I don't think anyone has said to me, well, a few have said, it's hopeless, Paul. (laughs) Our family is hopeless. I am hopeless. But it's often communicated in many other ways. But hopelessness invades and pervades so much of society... Because circumstances snowball so quickly, so quickly. And so if a volunteer ever came to me, or if someone said to me, Paul, what is it that actually Brentwood Connect does? We do many things, but if I could say one thing, it would be this. Our volunteers, our aim is we bring hope. <laughs> it's as simple as. don't care how you do it. It could be practically, it could be chatting, it could be being befriending, supporting, giving someone a hug. It doesn't matter. But we bring hope. And you can see when people start hearing encouraging things, when people start seeing and you're, you're, you're demonstrating good things can happen, strength will come. And all the things that we know and we take for granted, suddenly they're like, oh, oh I, I think I can do it. Most, most referrals, I always go and visit the family. And approximately, they take about two hours each initial visit. I go with one purpose. Well, actually, I go with two purposes. One purpose is to get all the information I need to pass on to the volunteer. <laughs> but the second thing is, I'm a man on a mission to bring hope. That's what I'm there for. 
Can I change all the circumstances? Can I live with them 24-7? Of course not. But what I can do is bring them hope. Because when hope rises, things start to change. I was with Pete on Friday, and uh, he mentioned a talk that he had listened to about uh, Bill Johnson was doing uh, at Bethel. And he, Bill described hope as this, the expectation that good things are going to happen. The expectation that good things are going to happen. Imagine the women's refuge. Imagine the poverty, the homeless people. Can you see the link? Why there's, there's little hope. Look at my life. Look what's happened to me. But hope, biblically, is the expectation that good things are going to happen. Genuine hope, he says, is like a child's excited expectation on a Christmas morning. And I thought, yeah, that's right. That's genuine hope. Hope isn't a kind of, well, it could work out okay, but not too sure. You know, I'm not, I've not really got faith for it because faith is probably more of a certain thing. Hope is, mm, I'm basically not going to put all my eggs in one basket. But what child on Christmas morning has that kind of a hope? <laughs> I suppose some might. But on most Christmas mornings, the kids are going, I'm going to get presents, they're going to be good. I gave my mum and dad a list. Do you know what I mean? There's that excitement, there's that energy, there's that hope of something good is going to be opened Christmas morning. That is God's intention for all these people we've been describing, all the people in Isaiah 61. Let hope arise. Jesus has given us the resources we need to advance and communicate and demonstrate the reality of Isaiah 61. He really has. On earth as it is in heaven, that we could represent Jesus as a church to our community, to these people in our streets, is highly achievable. It's interesting, isn't it? Paul describes the saints as like stars that shine in the night, doesn't he? And he says, you're the light of the world. You're the light of the world. You're the light of the world. Have you stopped to think stars and light can only be seen against darkness? True, isn't it? Now, I think everyone here this morning and everyone who hears this message will know that I've communicated darkness. Yeah? But we, we do and we can shine lights. We can be stars. We can be seen, be visible, and expose things that are in the darkness. I believe... I genuinely believe God's prophetic call for us in the season to come is simply this. And I've had this going round and round and in my dreams and everything. It's this. Let my people go. Let my people go. You know in Exodus, eight or nine times God says to Moses, go to Pharaoh and says, let my people go. 
We can sometimes think to ourselves, oh, let my people go. Oh, that's the saints. That's the, that's the Christians. That's the church people. No, 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 no. That was the nation. <laughs> Isn't it? Let my people go. You may think, do you think there was no darkness, nothing evil, nothing sinister going on in Israel? Of course not. But God says, these are my people. Let them go. He saw their misery. He saw their suffering, their hardship, their slavery, their poverty. And he looks upon our society and says, I see that domestic abuse. And I'm not unmoved. I see the mental health. I see the millions of tablets that are distributed through GP surgeries and other health professionals. And I say, let my people go. We want to be a church that shouts out, shouts out to our city, you are savvy, you're significant, you're accepted, you're valued, you're included. We do intimacy very, very well at Oasis Church. So let me say, well done. It's awesome. Honestly, the presence of God this morning was just so sweet. And it is most Sundays. Our intimacy is amazing. It really, really is. And we so need it. (laughs) Absolutely. But our intimacy, if it doesn't lead to action, is falling short. If we get so intoxicated and permeated with the love of Jesus, I'm not sure how we can do anything but respond to these people I've mentioned and others. There's homeless people, there's people without food, etc., etc. We can't be unmoved. I love it that we, we serve a God of the suddenly, like Robert Hodgkin said, Peter Godwood mentioned this morning. We've got to come expecting. We need to be in that place of expecting. God will suddenly break out in our jobs, in our works. But as a church, suddenly things can happen. And suddenly we're seeing the very reality of Isaiah 61, which has been talked and talked and talked about, becoming a reality. Today, in this generation of Oasis Church. This week we've been celebrating, haven't we, the um, 70th anniversary of D-Day. And we're commemorating, aren't we, and remembering the bravery, the courage, the significance, the pivotal significance of an event like D-Day. Men and women determined to come against an evil force of tyranny. And against all the adversity, against all the horrors of that day, they set their face like flint and you hear the testimonies, you hear the stories. Was I scared? Man, I was scared. I was absolutely scared stiff. But who's going to go? <laughs> what if I don't? We could literally be occupied by Germany, etc. It took over two years to plan D-Day. I don't know how long our plans will take <laughs> to demonstrate Isaiah 61. But this I do know. Our D-Day is coming. Our D-Day is coming. There is a momentum building within Oasis Church. This is troops are being sent to the south coast. (laughs) The armory is being loaded. More troops are coming in. The plans are laid out. The invasion's coming soon. And it's good news. (laughs) It's good news. 
It's for the display of his splendor. I need to wrap up. Very quickly, could I have the last slide? Gail. For the display of his splendor. Why, why do I do what I do? I don't get paid that well for it. Why do I do what I do? Why do I sit with all these people, these families, and help them? It's for the display of his splendor. For the display of his splendor. Because I want to see, in my day, Isaiah 61 realized. If you want that too, if you want to be good news to your community, if you want to, if you want to get with a bunch of dreamers, <laughs> and seriously, I've got some big, big dreams. Don't get me started on like orphans and orphanages and other stuff beyond Chelmsford. But if you want to get fired up, hear stories, hear testimonies, dream dreams, pray, intercede, please put this date in your diary, Tuesday the 17th of June, here. If you're sitting there thinking, it sounds, it sounds like bad news or it sounds too tough, come along. If you're sitting there going, I've got to get involved in this, come along. Everyone's included. No one's excluded. Um, I'm going to lead um, the evening with, and it, and it really is a privilege, um, Ruth Leverett. Yay! Is going to join me in hosting the evening. And Ruth is someone, if you don't know her that well, um, who has ably demonstrated the reality of Isaiah 61 through Kids Club. Obviously, she oversees the food bank now, but she's someone who literally has done the stuff. So we're going to host the evening. Do really, really encourage you to come along. We have got, haven't we, <laughs> the pearl of great price. We've got the good news of the gospel to share. If we just contain it and maintain it within our four walls, we are falling short of what God's intention is for us. Aren't we? Let my people go. Let my people go. D-Day's coming. Thank you very much.